Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen to episode 27 for part one of this two-part case. On this episode of They Walk Among America. In 1986, Timothy Hennis was found guilty of murdering Catherine Kara and Erin Eastburn and sentenced to death. At the time, no forensic evidence definitively tied Hennis to the crimes. However, several witnesses were confident the man fleeing the scene in a white Chevrolet Chevette and using Catherine Eastburn's stolen bank card was standing in the dock. The case would make its way to the Supreme Court, and Hennis won a new trial, citing the inflammatory photographs presented to the jury during the first set of legal proceedings. In a second trial several years later, Timothy Hennis would be acquitted of all charges. Advances in forensic analysis would be made over the intervening years, but was it enough to catch the person responsible? Welcome to episode 28 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us the award-winning true crime podcast. The Hennis case, as it became known, was a rallying cry for death row opponents, cited as an example of a wrongful conviction. The prosecution of Timothy Hennis was held up as an instance of an innocent person being convicted of crimes based on prejudicial testimony and inflammatory evidence. The Supreme Court had found the use of 26 photographs from the victim's autopsies had incited prejudice amongst the jury in the first trial, went beyond the court's discretion, and was not viewed as a harmless error. The state had 99 photographs of the crime scene and the victims, but despite the defence's request that only one picture of each victim be admitted, there were 35 photographs presented at the trial. As witnesses addressed the jury, the images were projected onto a large purpose-built screen in the courtroom, seemingly to illustrate the testimony because the circumstantial evidence against Hennis had not been overwhelming. 
the Supreme Court found that the photographs had been so prejudicial that he had been deprived of a fair trial. Ennis had been convicted based only on eyewitness testimony. One of the leading causes in wrongful convictions is eyewitness mistakes. Eyewitness identification is fallible, but during a trial it can come across as convincing even when it's wrong and can pose a serious risk to a jury of convicting somebody who is innocent. In fact, every single wrongful conviction in Missouri that was reversed by DNA evidence involved eyewitness misidentification. Following the proceedings, the courts made a new test for excess that would determine whether photographic evidence could be admitted. A book was written about the murders and the trials, portraying Timothy Hennis as a man who went up against a corrupt justice system and won. Still, many believe that the first jury had it right when they convicted Hennis, including Cumberland County District Attorney Ed Granis, who said in the book, Innocent Victims, the True Story of the Eastburn Family Murders, the authorities were not looking for anybody else in connection with the killings. In the wake of the acquittal, the State Bureau of Investigation conducted an immediate review into the murders of Catherine Carer and Erin Eastburn. Other suspects emerged. Someone had been reportedly calling houses in the neighbourhood at strange hours and asking them intrusive questions. The case bore an eerie similarity to other murders that had occurred near Fort Bragg years earlier. Jeffrey MacDonald had been convicted of murdering his pregnant wife and their two daughters with different weapons, but he had proclaimed his innocence, describing how a group of intruders had attacked the entire family and used their blood to write the word pig on a headboard above the bed. MacDonald claimed he was injured in the alleged home invasion, but he was eventually charged and convicted of the killings. Five miles and fifteen years separated the murders, but comparisons were made. At the MacDonald's murder scene, a glove had been used to write the word pig in blood, and at the Eastburn's home the tip from a rubber glove was discovered. It was at first postulated that the murders had been copycat killings, but eventually that theory was discredited. As the second trial was coming to a close, it was revealed that in July 1986, July 1987 and September 1988, somebody who identified himself as Mr. X claimed responsibility for the triple murders. The first letter was sent to Timothy Hennis at Central Prison in Raleigh. It read, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. A second letter was sent to the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department and Fayetteville Police Department. The author wrote, I'm passing through Fayetteville on my way to New Jersey. I murdered the Eastburns. I did the crime. Hennis is doing the time. Thanks again, Mr. Rex. 
Then in September 1988, somebody called the office of Bobby Deaver, a lawyer in Fayetteville. The caller told Deaver's secretary to tell Timothy Hennis he had a lousy lawyer and to thank Deaver for getting the wrong person convicted in the first trial. Bobby Deaver's surname often got mixed up with Beaver, which was the surname of one of Hennis's defence lawyers. This was not permitted to be entered as evidence during the trial. Nothing ever came of the review. Tragically, the killings of the Eastburns were quietly forgotten, and life carried on as normal, at least as normal as could be expected for those people who had found themselves embroiled in such a controversial murder case. Timothy Hennis and his wife had a son, Andrew, and Hennis became a Boy Scout leader. This allowed him to spend more time with his family. Captain Gary Eastburn and his only surviving daughter, Jana, temporarily relocated to the United Kingdom. He found love again with a nurse named Liz. A year after their marriage in 1991, Gary Eastburn left the Air Force and took up a job as an air traffic consultant. In 1998, along with Liz and Jana, he moved back to the United States where the family settled down with their two dogs in the bustling city of Puyallup, Washington. Jana grew up and moved into a nearby town with her boyfriend. The case helped build and tear down careers. Defence attorneys Gerald Beaver and Billy Richardson became famous, while the prosecutor's reputations were forever tarnished. Timothy Hennis served in the Persian Gulf War and Somalia, gradually earning promotions before retiring from the army in July 2004. Hennis moved to Lakewood, Washington, where he was able to live a life of anonymity, with his neighbours knowing nothing of his controversial past. Gary Eastburn had no idea that Hennis was living so nearby. In fact, just ten miles away. In 2005, District Attorney Ed Granis and Sergeant Larry Trotter, a homicide detective at the Sheriff's Office, decided they would revive the Eastburn murder investigation. At the time of the killings and during the first two trials, DNA evidence was only in its infancy. The first conviction in the United States based on DNA evidence came in 1987 during a Florida rape case but even then it could not be used with certainty. The FBI did not start testing DNA until December 1988. During the first handful of months, there was only one DNA examiner at the FBI laboratory, along with three technicians who provided assistance. The team did extensive work so that the technology could be validated and accepted in the courts. The first time that the FBI used DNA evidence during a criminal trial was in April 1989, the same month that Hennis was acquitted following his second trial. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation did not start testing DNA until later that year. Since then, the science of DNA testing had advanced tremendously. 
DNA could now even be extracted from oil and sweat in a fingerprint and then analysed in less than 24 hours. Sergeant Trotter requested the samples taken from the Eastburn home and from the autopsies be tested by the State Bureau of Investigation. The results of these DNA tests would not come back until the middle of the following year. They revealed that semen found inside Catherine Eastburn had come back with a match. In a shocking turn of events, it belonged to Timothy Hennis. However, District Attorney Ed Granis and Homicide Detective Sergeant Larry Trotter had a problem. The Double Jeopardy Clause. The clause ensures that if a person is found not guilty of a crime, then they cannot be prosecuted for it again. This meant that the state of North Carolina could not pursue the case against Timothy Hennis. Under the rules of double jeopardy, the state and federal governments are considered to be separate sovereign governments and they do not need to follow the same set of rules. Since there is no statute of limitations for murder and the murders occurred when Hennis was on active duty, the military had jurisdiction over the offences. This meant that Hennis could be prosecuted by the federal government under the dual sovereignty doctrine, in this case the military. In September 2006, Cumberland County District Attorney Ed Granis announced that he was reopening the investigation into the murders of Catherine, Kara and Darren Eastburn, and Timothy Hennis was once again the main suspect. Hennis was hand-delivered a notice that ordered him out of retirement, recalling him to active duty. He was given until October 30th to report to Fort Bragg. Hennis grabbed the paperwork and demanded the soldiers get off his property. While he was not informed at the time that he was being reinstated to face an investigation, Hennis most likely knew. Newspapers were already reporting on the DNA evidence. Timothy Hennis returned to Fort Bragg, and on November 8th he was charged once again with three counts of murder and one count of rape. The charges were brought by his company commander in the Special Troops Battalion, where Hennis was assigned when he returned to his post. Hennis retained the services of defence lawyer Frank Spinner, a retired lieutenant colonel who handled high-profile military cases. Spinner successfully defended Navy SEAL Lieutenant Andrew Ledford. Ledford was accused of beating a detainee at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq in 2003. After the charges were handed down, an Article 32 hearing was scheduled for February 2007. An Article 32 hearing is similar to a civilian grand jury, but instead of a jury hearing evidence to determine if there is enough to warrant a trial, a post commander must decide whether to convene a court-martial. However, come February, the hearing was pushed back because Timothy Hennessy's defence team needed more time to prepare. It was postponed until May, 
and the evidence would be heard by Colonel William Lee Denecki as opposed to a judge. In the military court hearing, forensic analyst Jennifer Lane testified that Hennis was linked to the crime by DNA evidence. During Catherine Eastburn's autopsy, semen was recovered. The forensic analyst testified that the odds of the sample being linked to somebody other than Hennis was 1 in 12.1 thousand trillion, adding that there were 6.5 billion people in the world. According to Lane, most of the DNA in the semen sample had come from Hennis, and the rest was that of Catherine Eastburn. The forensic analyst remarked that the DNA came from Hennis or an identical secret sibling nobody knew of. As defence attorney Frank Spinner conducted a cross-examination, he questioned the carelessness of the authorities when it came to storing the crime scene evidence over the decades, as well as potential flaws in the testing. The Article 32 hearing concluded with the prosecution announcing that if Timothy Hennis were to stand trial and were to be convicted, they would be seeking the death penalty. Captain Matthew Scott, the military prosecutor, stated, quote, The overwhelming evidence points to Master Sergeant Hennis as the perpetrator of these criminal acts. Colonel William Lee Denecki would ultimately decide that there was enough evidence against Hennis for him to stand trial for the triple murder and rape for a third time. In his report announcing the decision, Colonel Denecki wrote, I specifically find that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the totality of the aggravating factors and circumstances which exist in this case substantially outweigh any extenuating or mitigating circumstances, including the passage of 22 years since the crimes were committed and Master Sergeant Hennis's outstanding service record from 1989 till 2004. A senior officer at Fort Bragg subsequently recommended that the rape charge against Hennis be dropped. This was based on military law at the time of the murders. In 1985, the Uniform Code of Military Justice had a three-year statute of limitations for rape. This was changed just the following year, but the change was not retroactive. The recommendation to drop the rape charge was granted, and Hennis was court-martialed on three counts of premeditated murder. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. By March 2010, 
jury selection for the third trial began. The military proceedings were held in the new Fort Bragg courthouse on Normandy Drive. On March 17th, the military jury was seated and the trial was underway. During opening statements, Captain Nate Hug, one of the four prosecutors, described the gruesome scene inside the Eastburn home. He said, Mr. President, members of the panel, the phone is ringing. It's 1985. It's Mother's Day and the phone is ringing. It's ringing in the hallways of the squadron officer's school at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. The phone is ringing in that hallway and there is a young captain there. His name is Gary Eastburn. And Gary Eastburn hears that phone and he answers that call. And on the end of that phone is not his beautiful wife, Catherine. It's not his five-year-old baby girl, Kara. It's not his three-year-old baby girl, Erin. It's not his one-year-old baby girl, Jana. It's a homicide detective calling to say, Captain Eastburn, you need to come home. There's been a death in your family. There had actually been three deaths in Captain Eastburn's family. After describing the rape of Catherine and her murder and the killing of her daughters, the prosecution outlined the evidence they believed would show that Timothy Hennis had been responsible. The prosecutor said DNA testing proved that sperm found inside Catherine had come from Hennis. Quote, We told you the phone was ringing. Justice was calling. It's been 20-some years. It is time for you to answer that call for justice. It is time to show him for what he is. A brutal killer who slaughtered a mother and two babies. It is time to find him guilty. Timothy Hennessy's defence team said that male DNA was found underneath Catherine and Erin Eastburn's fingernails. But this DNA had come from somebody other than Hennis. They said that Hennis had no injuries on his arms or hands when he went to training. Captain Hugg's opening statement was also countered when the defence argued that other DNA tests did not confirm that the semen found in Catherine Eastburn's body had come from Timothy Hennis. One of the prosecutors rebutted this by saying, We can't tell you how it all happened but imagine Catherine and what's going on in her mind. The defence made in their case-in-chief this idea that he had no cuts and scratches, that he went to PD and had no cuts and scratches. How hard is it for Catherine Eastburn to struggle when she's been bound? And you have to think, what's going on in her mind? Oh my God, my husband's not here. Help is not on the way. I've got to protect my children. Do anything you want me to, but save my children. I will submit. I'll do anything but please save my children. That explains to you why there are no cuts and bruises on the accused on that evening. Many of the same witnesses from the first two trials would be called back to testify once more, including Catherine's husband, Captain Gary Eastburn. He broke down in tears as he testified about his wife, 
calling her the love of his life. Captain Eastburn said that Kara was a strong-willed little girl and exceptionally smart. As for Erin, he said she was cute as a button. The prosecution called on former FBI agent Randall Murch to testify about some of the forensic evidence. He explained that in 1985, he compared blood samples from Catherine Eastburn and Timothy Hennis against vaginal material taken from Catherine's body. Murch said that they could not show whether Hennis was the source of the sperm that was found. At the time the tests were completed, forensic DNA testing was years away from being used in an American court. The former FBI agent described how he looked at blood enzymes. Different people have different types of enzymes in their blood, and the method used was less precise than modern DNA testing. Randall Murch continued telling the jury that the enzymes in the vaginal material matched enzymes in Catherine's blood, but there was no sign of enzymes from Hennessy's blood. Much of the early testimony focused on how the evidence from the crime scene was stored in the 25 years since the murders. During opening statements, defence attorney Chris Poppy said there was a black hole in which the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office lost track of evidence between 1989 and 2005. However, retired Deputy Derwood Cannon, who was in charge of evidence storage for most of that time frame, denied this. He said security at the evidence storage room had been tightened in 1994 after an evidence custodian was caught stealing guns, which had been ordered to be destroyed. Defence attorney Frank Spinner asked Cannon why there was a lack of documentation to show who handled the evidence between these years. Cannon explained that a record would only be made if someone examined the evidence. The reason there was a lack of evidence was simply due to a lack of people reviewing the evidence. Patrick Cohn, the star witness from the previous legal proceedings, would be called to take the stand for a third time. Much like the first two trials he was adamant that the man he had seen outside the Eastburn home on the night of the murders was Hennis. The passage of time had not altered his memories. Cohn admitted that he was not always so certain. In the summer of 1985, he said he began to doubt that he had selected the right man from the photographic lineup. Cohn cited several factors including his family telling him he should never have got involved. He said his doubts were resolved when his sister encouraged him to do the right thing. As Cohn said on the witness stand, the right thing was to, quote, tell what happened and what I saw. Under cross-examination, Defence attorney Chris Poppy made Cohn admit that he had been awake for almost 24 hours and had been drinking on the night he saw the man outside the Eastburn home. The defence also tried to tarnish Cohn's credibility, highlighting the fact that he had several brushes with the law from summer 1986 to early 1989. 
They said it looked as though the district attorney's office had held off on prosecuting Cohn on three incidents which included the theft of a bank card in August 1986, a clash with a Fayetteville police officer, and having an expired car registration tag. Lucille Cook, who was sure she saw Hennis using the bank teller machine around the same time Catherine Eastburn's stolen bank card was used, also testified again. An issue in the case was whether Hennis would have had time to drive to the Ramsey Street teller machine during his working hours at Fort Bragg. Former detective Ron Oakes told the courtroom that he timed the journey and was able to drive to the Ramsey Street teller machine from Hennis's work site on Gruber Road at Fort Bragg in 141 seconds. This was done while obeying all traffic laws, indicating that it was certainly plausible for Hennis to have made the trip and travelled back on site without anybody ever noticing he was gone. The most pivotal moment of the trial came when the new DNA evidence was presented. It was the foundation of the prosecution's case against Hennis. North Carolina Chief Medical Examiner John Butts told the courtroom that in 1985, he collected and stored a slide with a sperm-filled sample of vaginal material he found in the body of Catherine Eastburn taken during her autopsy. Brian Higgins, a forensic technician at the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory, testified that the DNA sample came back as a match to Timothy Hennis. Higgins said, Master Sergeant Hennis and all his male paternal relatives can't be excluded as a source. The forensic technician continued his testimony revealing that Hennis's DNA did not match samples found on a bloody towel at the crime scene. Samples taken from underneath Catherine's fingernails and in the tip of a rubber glove came back as inconclusive. However, Brian Higgins explained that DNA could have come from anybody who had touched the towel. In 1985... Detectives and crime scene investigators often did not wear gloves when handling evidence. Higgins had done two DNA testing methods. The first one found that DNA partially matched Hennessy's DNA. The second one looked only at the portion of DNA that men get from their fathers. Higgins said that the second method was imprecise but it could neither exclude Hennis as the source of the sperm, nor could it show that it did come from him. The defence would attempt to attack the new DNA evidence, suggesting that the samples could have been contaminated by poor storage and handling. Defence attorney Chris Poppy tried to get Higgins to concede that a portion of the results of the male DNA did not come back as a match to Hennis. The expert witness refused and accused the attorney of focusing on an example of a specific error that is sometimes generated in DNA analysis. Ennis's counsel would also highlight that despite the brutal nature of the murders, no blood was ever found on his client's clothing. However, according to medical examiner Butts, 
while arteries can spurt blood. If the blood pressure is low from blood loss, or from a heart that has stopped beating, then there would be less blood. It was revealed during this third trial. Timothy Hennis had a black, members-only jacket dry-cleaned following the murder. Another forensic expert would then testify. Jennifer Hopper, a former forensic biologist for the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, said that the sperm found inside Catherine Eastburn had come from Hennis. The odds of another Caucasian having the same DNA were 12.1 thousand trillion to one. Hopper conducted her own tests on the sperm sample, which involved separating the sperm cells from the other material. She tested the other material for DNA and found only DNA from Catherine Eastburn. The sperm cells contained DNA that could only come from Hennis. Hopper's testimony countered the claims from the defence that the sperm sample could have been contaminated in the 25 years it was stored. Following this testimony, the prosecution rested their case and the defence began their argument. The defence team would hire their own experts to testify about the sperm sample and suggested that Timothy Hennis and Catherine Eastburn could have had consensual sexual conduct the day Hennis came to pick up Dixie, the Eastburn's dog. It was a massive gamble on part of the defence, the first time anybody on Hennis's side admitted that he could have been sexually involved with Catherine. For the past 25 years... Hennis had been adamant that he only met Catherine briefly and only went to her home to collect Dixie. In short, the controversial move tossed out Hennis's reliability for the sake of casting doubt. Robert Bucks, a medical examiner from Colorado, testified that the sperm found inside Catherine Eastburn could have been inside her body as much as three days prior to her murder. Bugs also highlighted the brutal nature of the murders, suggesting that the killer would have blood on their clothing. The defence then called on several witnesses who were with Hennis the day after the murders, including some of his fellow soldiers. They all testified that there was nothing unusual about Hennessy's behaviour that day. He did not appear to be tired and did not have any scratches or bruises. After three weeks of testimony, the trial came to a close. During closing arguments, prosecutors contended that science had finally caught up with Timothy Hennis. Prosecutor Captain Matthew Scott told the court that Hennis may have been able to clean up the crime scene, but he could not clean up his DNA. Describing the horrific attack on Catherine Eastburn, the prosecutor said, The person that slaughtered her raped her. The person that raped her left his sperm. 
Captain Matthew Scott went on to highlight how the army trusted DNA to be the final word on soldiers that are killed in battle, before questioning, why is it not good enough to ID a murderer? On the other hand, defence attorney Frank Spinner suggested that the DNA evidence only proved that Hennis had sex with Catherine Eastburn. He stated, Does the evidence take you beyond adultery to murder? The jury was sent off to deliberate. They would return less than three hours later. As the verdicts were announced... Captain Gary Eastburn and his daughter Jana, who had sat through the entire trial, cried as they hugged one another. Timothy Hennis was found guilty of three counts of premeditated murder. The sentencing phase followed, and Captain Eastburn spoke about how the killings had affected him. He said that while 25 years have passed since his wife and two of his daughters were murdered, he still remains angry at the void they left behind. He often finds himself thinking about the school plays, the graduations, and all the birthdays he had missed over the past two and a half decades, telling the courtroom, I miss their lives. I'm bitter about that. Captain Eastburn spoke for around an hour. He wept throughout most of that hour as he spoke of his loss. He struggled to contain his emotion as he said, I feel like a failure as a father. When they needed me the most, I wasn't anywhere around them. During the sentencing phase, Janice Eastburn, who was now 26 years old, spoke about the killings publicly for the first time. She said she remembered nothing of her mother or her two sisters. Jana described how she grew up and saw other children with their mothers. She wished she knew what that was like. Catherine's mother, Jane Furnish, told the courtroom how when Jana was young, she said to her, Grandma, I know you're not mummy, but can I call you that? The prosecution had concluded their case with a slideshow presentation that contained photographs of the Eastburn family. They depicted Kara and Erin playing together carving pumpkins at Halloween and celebrating their birthdays. The final photograph showed Gary Eastburn, Catherine, Kara and Erin sitting on the couch alongside their dog, Dixie. In the pre-sentencing phase of the trial, counsel asked the jury to imagine the mental anguish of Catherine Eastburn as she realised that she was not going to be saved and that her daughters were at the mercy of a six-foot-four stranger. They spoke about five-year-old Kara Eastburn and the fear she must have felt. The prosecutor said, and little Kara in her bed down the hall under her blanket, age five, 
at the age where your parents tell you monsters aren't real. And when you're five and you lay in bed and you close your eyes and you hide under the blanket thinking I can't see them so they can't see me. Imagine the screams. Before the prosecutor finished their address, they told the jury that the defence would likely ask for mercy for their client, but urged jurors to remember that Catherine and her children had probably begged for mercy. The defence would fight to save Timothy Hennessy's life, calling on his friends, family and fellow soldiers to humanise him. His sister Beth Brumfield wiped away a tear as she said, I still love him. I believe him. Beth described how the past couple of years since her brother was recalled to the army had been hard on the family. Ennis's military colleagues recalled that he was punctual, professional and dedicated to his fellow soldiers. Colonel Joseph Williams, who served with Hennis in Fort Lewis, said, The Sergeant Hennis I know is a good person. He was a good non-commissioned officer. He's been a good friend. He's been with me and my kids and my family. I respect the conclusion the panel came to, but I still hold Tim Hennis in high regard. In an effort to persuade the jury not to sentence Hennis to death, his 25-year-old daughter Christina described him as a hero. She said he was an amazing father who read to her every night and helped with her activities in Girl Scouts and basketball. As a grandfather, Hennis was said to spoil his grandchildren. the military jury would ultimately decide that Timothy Hennis deserved to die for his crimes. As they announced a death sentence, Hennis showed no semblance of emotion. It was the second time a soldier at Fort Bragg was sentenced to death in the past five years. The other was Army Sergeant Hassan Akbar, who committed a grenade and rifle attack on his own comrades in 2005. Janner Eastburn spoke with ABC News following Timothy Hennessy's conviction. Footage obtained by the network showed Janner as a 22-month-old sitting on the lap of a forensic psychologist, kissing a photograph of her mother. The little girl was asked what she remembered, and she said, Hide from the burglar. He's going to come get me. Jana's memories of that night have since vanished, but the lasting impact has not. She remarked, My biggest thing is, why didn't he kill me? Why didn't he? I don't know. After over two decades of waiting, Captain Gary Eastburn addressed the media following the sentence being delivered. Speaking to WRAL News about Hennis, he said, No matter what he's done now, that doesn't eradicate what he did to my wife and children. 
to do something like he did. He had to be a very emotionless person. A soulless person. Gary Eastburn added, What is it that would make a person do what he did? I mean, not just to murder them, but to mutilate them. When he was exonerated, Timothy Hennis was held as an example of why the death penalty should be abolished. Hennis's subsequent reconviction left a shadow of doubt over those who have been exonerated, questioning whether those freed from prison under a wrongful conviction were innocent, or if there was just insufficient evidence to prove their guilt. In the end, Timothy Hennis's arrogance caught up with him, and he could not escape the evolution of science. His defence team threw out all of his credibility when they attempted to introduce doubt to the jury. Following his conviction, Ennis was taken to the US disciplinary barracks in Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. This is where he will remain until the day he is led to the execution chamber and injected with drugs that will end his life. As per military law, the President of the United States must approve all death sentences. Over the years, Hennis and his defence team have appealed his conviction and death sentence. Each time, his appeal has been denied. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com and for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.